I am going to read the teaching text for today. We are stepping into a new series in the book of Philippians. And so this is Philippians uh, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Then I'll invite Jason up to launch us into this series. Paul writes, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Jason? Thanks, Rach. Well, everyone, it's good to be together. We are starting a new series in the book of Philippians. We'll spend 13 weeks going through the short book. I think in the original language, it's just over 1,600 words. And so we've got time to go through it together. And um, the Bible is a collection of books. There's 66 books in the Bible. And so far as a church, we're covering about two per year. So if you journey with us for 33 years, (laughs) you will be equipped, we hope, to read and apply and participate and meet Jesus in the pages of all 66 books. And I say that slightly tongue-in-cheek, but that actually seems like a really good pace. Like, yeah, we could do that together. It sounds like the pace of discipleship and formation. And the goal when we do a, a study of a book and we, is that as a community, we'd be shaped together by the truth in God's word. We'd be shaped together. And that you personally would be equipped to read it that you'd be able to go, and every time now you go to Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, you'd find yourself with a toolkit to read and engage it for your personal formation, your personal journey with Jesus. Whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, that you would be strengthened, equipped to engage with Scripture. Now, the team, the teaching team, Chris and Dan and Daryl and Elita and Brad and others have contributed to building a steady guide Uh, that is now available for you. So this is free online if you want to grab it from the website, or if you want a print copy, you can order it on Amazon, and we'll have them at the back starting next week. And it is like a verse-by-verse guide that you can do at home alongside with it. So this is something that we prepared for you in an effort to help you engage with Scripture. So here's my job today. My job today is to set the stage for the next 12 weeks, to provide framing and context, some notes that will serve us as we read the book of Philippians together. And the first thing I want you to hear is this. The book of Philippians is a letter, better called the letter to the Philippians or the letter to the church in Philippi. What we're reading is a letter. And when Rach and I were dating, we exchanged letters, not because we were dating that long ago, but because it was cute and sort of nostalgic. And, but what if you were to find one of those letters and you pick up a letter, any letter, Our imaginations would naturally put that letter in the context of correspondence. There's somebody else on the other side. There's something that's being responded to, a situation or a previous letter. And anytime you engage with one side of correspondence, you imagine the other side of the correspondence, and then you enter into the story. And one of the reasons why I want us to think about this as a letter, we need to know it's a letter, is because there is a gripping story we're entering into. Paul in the first century, is in prison in Rome. And he writes this letter to a young church, a 10-year-old church in the city of Philippi. 
Paul's in prison, and he writes this letter to this young, new church in this colony of Rome. And this is fascinating. Like, I just think this is such a fascinating thing we get to do is to, like, open a reliable first-century document. Think about how young the Christian movement was. People were alive at this time who walked with Jesus. This is a young movement. And the forces of Rome are trying to snuff it out with great persecution against Christians. People are upending their lives to follow Jesus. And the powers of the government and the religious establishment are trying to stop it. And yet it's growing. And Paul's in prison. And there's these young Christians. And he writes them this short note. And we get to read it today. And I think that's pretty cool. I think it's a great invitation for us today. And I want to note that it's a letter for two reasons. One, whenever you open a new book of the Bible, you have to ask the question, what genre of literature is this? Because the way you might read, for example, Psalms, which is primarily in the format of poetry, or Revelation, which is apocalyptic literature, is different. The rules and way we understand different types of literature are different. And the way you understand a letter is informed by the fact that it is a Letter. So I say that practically, but I also say it for another reason. And I say it because there's a temptation whenever we deal with scripture or religious content to put it in the realm of abstract ideas, almost like a sentimentalism. But the fact that this is a letter written to real people in a real place at a real time doesn't give us permission to do that. It forces us to ask this question, what does this truth mean for my life in Vancouver today? Because there's a temptation to come into this building, to say these words, to sing the songs, to interact with the ideas with no intention of as it intersecting with the actual fleshiness of our lives. But a letter like this is covered with flesh and blood. It's dusty like the earth. It's incarnated, not disembodied. And that's the invitation for us as we read it today. And I want you to imagine the scene. So Paul is in prison, and he's got dear friends in Philippi. He's been in prison for about two years. And there's a man in Philippi called Epaphroditus who they send on the journey to Rome with like a care package. Because in this time, when you were in prison, you were dependent on friends and family to provide food and care and resources. So Epaphroditus goes to Rome, visits Paul, gives him these resources. Then Paul pens a letter and sends it back with Epaphroditus, and he comes to the church, and they read it together. I love it. So I've been thinking about this a lot, and uh, my imagination went wild this week, and I know what I'm about to do is a little bit cheesy. But I started fantasizing about what it would be like if I was in prison in Calgary. And uh, it's been two years. I really miss you guys. You send Daniel Smith to Calgary with a care package. And before he goes, I quickly write a letter and I send it to you. And so here's my letter. (laughs) To the Way Church family in Vancouver. As I write, I'm praying that God's love and peace and power would be alive in the most profound way in your heart. More than anything, I long for you to truly know how good the good news is, to not just know intellectually, but to experience the love and freedom that's made available in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I long to be with you. I love you and care for you. 
I've gotten reports from Jeremy about your passion for Jesus, your love for one another, for, about your generosity, and it gives me so much joy to hear about that. Jer also told me that Chris had quite the fall at the January 2nd skate. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that he's recovering. Send him my greetings. I want to urge you, brothers and sisters, be unified in Christ. Don't let the patterns of this world, the way, the way of division and pride, make its way into our community of faith. Just as the Father and the Son are unified, may we be unified. Don't give in to the winds of culture, the cheap and changing ideas and arguments of the day. They come and they go. Instead, stand firm in the truth of Jesus Christ. It has endured from generation to generation is the key to life in every culture in every generation, in every part of the world. Make room for outsiders. What I've always loved about you, Way Church family, is your heart to make space for others. Let's never become a closed door club. Let's never be only looking out for our own good. May we have eyes to see the needs around us and the courage to respond. Speaking of generosity, don't give up in your generous giving. I want you to know, and I can testify firsthand, God provides for every one of our needs so we never have to be afraid or close-fisted with our money or resources or even our time. Give it away freely and watch Jesus provide. And if I had, you know, I could go on, but I'd probably want to encourage you to carry on in your deep commitment of prayer. I'd say don't let it just be one week of the year, but let it run through the whole year. I would charge you that each of you have a part to play, that though you're surrounded by preachers and song leaders and organizers and prophets and intercessors, they're not meant to be the professional team doing all the work, but that God's given them to us to equip us, to equip you to the real stuff of living as salt and light in the city of Vancouver. And I'd probably express my gratitude for you. I'd remind you to work with other churches in the city, to remember that we're just a small part of what God's doing in Vancouver. I'd say stand firm. I would tell you that God finishes what he starts, so don't give up. And I'd end by saying, send my love to Ralph. I really miss that guy. Look out for Daryl and Sharon. They're very special to me. Something like that. It's a letter. It's a letter from a pastor to a congregation that he loves. And God, in his kindness, speaks through Paul, not just a word for the church of Philippi, but for the church in every generation, in every place. And that's what we're going to enter into for the next 12 weeks. Here's my roadmap for today. Here's what we're going to do. I want to look at the writer of the letter, the recipients of the letter, and the reason for the letter. The writer, the recipients, the reason. Three R sounds. <laughs> the writer. Paul is the writer. He's not alone. He sends greetings with him and Timothy. It seems that Timothy was there for some portion of the writing. So Paul writes... And he writes while he's in prison in Rome. Why is he in prison? He's in prison for following Jesus. He's in prison for inviting others to follow Jesus. He's in prison for proclaiming that Jesus is Lord. And this is fascinating. Because Paul is being persecuted for preaching the message of Jesus as Lord. Paul's going around city to city proclaiming the gospel, planting churches. What's fascinating about this is Paul spent much of his adult life persecuting Christians. And now he is being persecuted for his faith in Christ. 
In chapter 7 and 8 of the book of Acts, we see Paul complicit in the stoning, the killing of Stephen, one of the deacons in the church whose special job was to care for widows in the church. And Paul, as part of the religious establishment, is complicit in seeing him killed. This is the kind of religious persecution that's going on. And it's only amplified when Paul's writing from Philippi as Nero is reigning. And in 7 and 8, Paul's complicit in persecuting Christians. But then in chapter 9, God shows up in Paul's life. God shows up. Jesus reveals himself to Paul, the persecutor of the church, and makes him a preacher and ambassador and church planter. This is who's writing. And it makes me wonder if the greatest champions of the gospel in our generation in Vancouver even know Jesus yet. You can't listen to Paul write to the church in Philippi and miss the miracle. How can it be that he's writing with such clarity and courage? about the person of Jesus, a champion of the church. So Paul's writing, and he's writing to the church in Philippi. The recipients of this letter are the church in Philippi. And lots can can be said about the city of Philippi. It's a Roman province in Macedonia in northern Greece. But here's what we need to know most about Philippi. The people of Philippi were proud Roman citizens. It's really important. Just track with me for a moment. So Philippi's a Roman colony. They weren't reluctantly part of the Roman Empire, as some towns or villages might be. They were proudly a colony of Rome. Because they were Roman citizens, they had all the rights and privileges that came with being Roman. And they were very patriotic. There was a sense of patriotic nationalism. There was a lot of military veterans that settled in the city. So you need to picture us, like, we're proud to be Rome. Some historians called it Little Rome. You know, as it went with Rome, so it went with Philippi. The ideas of Rome were the ideas of Philippi. The beliefs and practices of Rome were the beliefs and practices of Philippi. And here's why this is so important. Because what Paul wants to say to the followers of Jesus in this letter is that though you are surrounded by proud citizens of Rome, your primary identity and citizenship is in Christ. And when that happens, like here's what happens when you start following Jesus. It's not that you stop being Canadian or stop being whatever identity you have, father, spouse, but it's that you have a new and more primary identity in Christ. And just like the fact that this is a letter and it hits real people in a real way, so our citizenship in Christ is not an abstract idea. It's an on-the-ground, intersecting with our day-to-day life idea. And so Paul is charging these proud people to think differently, proud of their their, their connection to Rome, to think differently about their citizenship. The church started in Philippi in a very fun way. So Paul is journeying from city to city, town to town, and he's preaching and starting churches. But he had no intention to go to Macedonia. He had no intention at all to go to Philippi. It wasn't his plan. But you can read all about this in Acts chapter 16, but here's what happens. Paul has a dream, and in his dream, he sees a man And the man says in his dream, come over to Macedonia and help us. 
And so Paul wakes up from his dream and discerns that God has spoken to him about where he should go next. And so Paul and his companions begin the trip to Macedonia and land in Philippi. And as a side note, what does it mean for us to live in such a way that we have plans, but our plans can be interrupted by God? Because Paul had a plan, and it's not bad to have plans. It's not wrong to have plans. But Paul was moving at a cadence before the living God that allowed him to be sensitive to the word of the Spirit. And as God revealed himself to Paul, Paul found himself syncing up his plans with the plans of God. And so he gets to Philippi and he meets a woman named Lydia. She's a businesswoman. She's successful and she's open to God. And so she meets Paul and the team and they have these conversations and Paul leads her to the Lord. She becomes a Christian. They go to her house. It seems as though like the church in Philippi begins around Lydia's home. But the story goes on. Paul's walking one day with his companions and there's a slave girl who's demonized in such a way that she's able to wield spiritual power with psychic abilities. But she's a slave, and so her owner is exploiting this girl and her ability to do psychic work so that they can profit. And this, this girl is following Paul and the companions and kind of calling out, making a big scene. These men are working for the Most High God, she cries out. They're laying out the road of salvation for you, calling out. And it's as if Paul's almost agitated, and he turns, and he says to the demonic powers in her life, come out of her in Jesus' name. And she's delivered from the darkness, set free. And the owners are furious, because now they can't profit off of her. And so the business owners cause essentially a mob and they bring all this force against Paul and his people, and they're beaten, they're stripped of their clothes, and thrown in prison. And I feel like I need to pause there and make a couple of notes. First, the ministry of Jesus is freedom and liberation from earthly and spiritual principalities. That is what Jesus does. And so it's no surprise that when Paul joins in in the Jesus work, he's bringing liberty to people who are enslaved in earthly, physical ways and spiritual ways. And Jesus is still in the liberation business today. There is freedom from the demonic. There's freedom from sin and fear of death. And there's freedom available as his kingdom invades this earth. The second note is obedience from God, obedience to God's will does not mean freedom from pain and pushback. I just don't want to move so fast that we miss the fact that God spoke to Paul in a dream to go to Macedonia. He goes to Macedonia, helps people, and then he's beaten up and put in jail. So he's in jail. And it says that he and Silas at midnight in jail, start singing and praying. They start singing and praying. They're praising God. It's a beautiful thing. I love the way that the songs of our Christian faith can become a refuge in dark times. Even as we're singing this morning, even in the darkness, you're with me. I thought for some of us, that might be a melody that gets us through the darkest nights. 
And so Paul's in prison with Silas, and they don't despair. They find themselves praising God, trusting that if God brought us here, he must have a plan. And something very miraculous happens in the middle of the night as they're singing and praying. There's an earthquake. There's an earthquake. It seems to be from the hand of God, and it breaks open the doors of the prison cell. This is it. They're free. God's made a way miraculously. They're praising. They're singing. (sighs) Earthquake. The doors are open. And all of a sudden, the prison guard starts panicking. The prison guard realizes people are going to escape. The prisoners are going to escape. And then I'm going to be in deep trouble. So he draws a sword. And he actually goes to take his own life. And Paul, in a moment of compassion, goes, stop, 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 stop. Don't kill yourself. We're not going anywhere. Don't don't do it. We're not going anywhere. Listen to the language. This is Acts chapter 16, verse 29. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and his household were baptized. The jailer brought brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. Lydia, a slave girl, the jail guard and his whole household. That's the church plant. I just have been just so moved by that all week. Just the way God builds his church, the way he goes after. It's not an abstract group of people who became the church in Philippi. It's individual lives being intersected by the good news of the gospel. And it came by God's grace through the hands of imperfect people, Paul and Silas, willing to say, Spirit, where are you taking me? And in a moment of compassion, to say there's a moment for the gospel here that could change the history of this family and generations to come. This is how it all started. And I find myself praying, God, do that in our time. Do that here in Vancouver. And I guess that some of you would have a similar testimony. The way that God intersected your life in a surprising way, and you found yourself here today. And the letter to the church of Philippi is written about 10 years later. All of this is happening around 50 years in, uh, in 50 AD. And then he's writing around 60 or 62 AD. So over 10 years, the church is growing. And it's growing in the midst of great persecution. There is fiery persecution against the church, and it's growing, and it's growing, and it's growing. And Paul writes to them, full of love, with joy, from prisons, to his dear brothers and sisters in Philippi. Lastly, the reason for the letter. The reason for the letter. Some of the reasons are really practical. Like, one of the main things he's doing is he wants to say thank you. Thank you so much for sending resources. He didn't just thank them for sending resources while he's in prison. He thanks them for providing for his missionary journeys as well. The church in Philippi is the kind of church we want to be like. Not just because of our love for one another, but for their generosity to serve and support missions and other churches. Paul thanks them for the generosity that allowed him to serve churches in other cities. That's what we do as a church. 
We invest. This week, as a church, we hosted 50 pastors from all over North America, poured into them, invested in them, encouraged them. We host them in our space. Aaron leading worship, Daryl investing, Daniel, Mariah, the whole team, all making space, showing hospitality and love and care for other pastors. And you made that happen. And that's the kind of thing we do as a church. And that's the kind of thing that the church in Philippi would do. And so Paul thanks them. Thank you for your generosity. There's other practical reasons for the letter. He also has heard about some division. There's two people that are kind of in some sort of tussle. So he calls them out by name, a little bit embarrassing. It'd be like, it'd be like I'm not going to use any examples. I was looking around. I was about to do it. I was about to do it. And then these guys in front were like, no, 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 don't do it. It would be like me writing and saying two specific names, like sort it out. Like sort it out, you guys. Come on. So he calls it specifically. There's some practical reasons for the letter. But the main reason for the letter the main reason that he's writing is he wants to help this young church work out what it means to be followers of Jesus in the city of Philippi. He wants to help them work out what does it mean to be citizens of heaven when you're in a colony of Rome. And the title to the guide is Citizens. The title of the series is Citizens because this presents a primary theme that we can follow as we work through the book of Philippians. And you hear it in the language. Let me give you a couple examples. One is in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. He says this. He says to this church, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. This idea of conduct yourselves in a manner, it actually pulls from like civic language. So Paul knows exactly what he's doing. He's playing with this idea of their identity as citizens in Rome. And he's saying, what does it look like for you to re-understand your identity as citizens of heaven? And then he says, live in a manner, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. And this idea of worthy means in keeping with, in sync with the gospel. So he's essentially saying, live gospel-shaped lives. Every part of you, gospel-shaped lives. And as best as I understand the work of the Spirit, is when he steps into our life, he begins to work at the very core of who we are. But he, what he longs to do is to transform the core of ourselves in such a way that it makes its way into every single part of our whole being. The picture I have in my mind is, remember when you used to, in biology class, see like, the, the, the view of the human body with all of the like, capillaries and veins? and arteries, and it's like you see as the heart beats, it moves through the whole body. And this is how I think about Christian salvation and sanctification, that the renewing and regenerating work that the Spirit does at the core of us, he longs to pump that transforming, gospelized blood into every single nook and cranny of our being and person, our actions, our beliefs, our habits, the way we move through planet Earth. And so Paul is saying, like, let your conduct be fully gospelized, like live in such a way in every corner of your life that is in keeping, that's consistent with the gospel of Jesus. And as we mature in Christ, you and I, our lives are meant to become more and more gospel-shaped. And so this is a good question for you and I to ask. What does that look like for more and more of our lives to become gospelized? to be gospel-shaped, of letting the work of Jesus make its way into every part of our life, our values, our beliefs, our ethics, our actions, our loves. You're not a citizen of Vancouver first. You're a citizen of heaven. It's fun to think that 
Rome set up a colony in Macedonia called Philippi, an outpost of Rome. And do you know what God is doing on planet Earth today? He's setting out outposts of heaven all over this world. As it is in heaven, so on earth. One last thing. The book of Philippians has a structure. As you read it, it's helpful to know the structure. If you've got a physical Bible, go to Philippians chapter 2. If you've got it on your phone, go there as well. We'll put it on the screen. But it's helpful if you've got it in front of you as well. Because the way Paul has structured the whole book of Philippians, it orbits around Philippians chapter 2 from verse 5 through 11. And when I say orbit, what I mean is the center of gravity. This is the words of Tim Mackey. It's the center of gravity of the book of Philippians is this poem. And it's a poem that's a reflection of Jesus. It's a meditation on Jesus, his character, his life, his death and resurrection, and his exaltation. And what Paul does in the whole letter is each section outside of this poem interacts with the themes and values of the poem. And I was thinking this week, I heard the language of center of gravity, and I thought about center of orbit, and I was thinking about our solar system. And I was thinking about how our whole solar system moves around the sun. Like the force of the sun, like there's all these other forces in our solar system, there's all these other competing forces, but the force of the sun is the primary force. It's what everything orbits around. And I was just thinking that. Our lives, each of us, have a center of orbit. There's someone or something or a set of values or beliefs that ultimately dictate all the movements of our lives. Yes, there are other forces. There are all sorts of different forces. But there is always, like our hearts, like the language of Scripture would be about worship. Like our hearts were made to worship. And what worship does is it finds our identity and values in the thing that we worship. And so it becomes the center of orbit. It becomes the thing in which we orient our whole lives around. And just as Paul orients all of his teaching to the church in Philippi around this verse, this poem, so too are we meant to orient our whole lives around the person of Jesus. And just what Paul wants to do is draw them in through this poem. I want to draw us in. I want to turn our attention to Jesus. At the heart of following Jesus is seeing him seeing who he is, his character, his person, reflecting on what he's done, what he's doing, and he will do. At the heart of Christian discipleship is worship, keeping our eyes on Jesus, our center of gravity, the center of orbit, orienting our whole lives around Jesus. And every time we gather on Sunday, and every day, we have an invitation to deprioritize the things that don't deserve the primary affection of our hearts and to reorient our whole lives with Jesus at the center, to find our identity in him. Let me read to you the, the words of this poem that the book of Philippi centers around or the book of Philippians centers around. Paul says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, 
even death on a cross. Can we just pause for a moment? What kind of king are we talking about here? Like this is meant to move us to awe and wonder. Jesus, very nature God, God himself, humbles himself, becomes a servant. Verse 8, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. How do we live as citizens of heaven in the colonies of this world? How do we find our identity in Christ? It begins with seeing him, giving Jesus all of our attention, seeing who he is, seeing the servant king who laid down his life for you and I and is now seated in the place of highest authority, seated in the highest place of authority. And then as we worship him and gaze on him, letting that reality inform every aspect of our day-to-day life. Jesus, today, we turn our attention on you. As we worship, as we receive communion and prayer, we put you at the center of our lives. You are at the center of the whole universe. The whole universe is orbiting around you, God. And so we want our lives to be in keeping with that profound reality. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't we stand together and sing in response?